Okay, let's go. Hello everyone, I'm Angela and welcome back to my channel. Today we have a special guest here on the channel and we will talk about a very fascinating topic which is paganism from a psychological perspective. Our guest today is Dr. Charmaine Sonex. Charmaine is a psychologist specialized in transpersonal psychology and a lecturer at the University of Buckingham. She has conducted fascinating studies on spellcasting and pagan practices from a psychological perspective. And also she advocates, which I totally agree upon, the importance of studying paganism from a psychological standpoint. So let's all welcome on the channel Charmaine. Hi Charmaine! Hello, you're just appeared. <laughs> Thank you for being here on my on my YouTube channel. <laughs> Thank you for inviting me. <laughs> yeah, when I when I heard about your research, I was totally intrigued, and I thought, wow, I've never heard of her research before. Why haven't I? So we absolutely <laughs> have to to fill the gap. <laughs> yeah, I I try to uh, I try to present at conferences on religious studies as well but being a psychologist my awareness of them is kind of minimal mm. yeah it's good to to know someone who studies paganism from a different perspective and i know your um, phd was on spell casting and the <laughs> efficacy of healing spells uh healing yep. pagan spells so can you tell us something more about your uh phd research yeah, um, so the, the main focus was looking at the efficacy, of, as you say, of distant healing spells. Um, so it's kind of a, a project in three parts. So for the first part, I did a meta-analysis of existing distant healing research. So in meta-analysis, what we do is we take existing research that has already been published as research with statistical outcomes, and we will combine all of those outcomes together to get an overall view of what's happening with the research. Because it's one thing to do a kind of narrative review where you're looking at all the research and you're presenting all the different findings and you're kind of uh, weighing it up logically, but statistically the results might be something different. And so with meta-analysis, you can put all of those statistics together and get a kind of overall answer. And so I wanted to do that with existing distant healing research um, because there's been an awful lot of it. Um, and so, and there hadn't been, at that point, there hadn't been a, a meta-analysis done for about 15 years or something. Um, so I wanted to get a more up-to-date overview um, and most of that, in fact, none of that research that was that we looked at had been conducted using um, pagan healing spells. So it's more to get a background of, okay, here's what other approaches are showing us. Um, is that something that we will then see in these pagan healing practices? And so what did you find? Yeah. Um, 
So we found some interesting results. Um, we basically split the research into two categories. So we had what we called whole human, which was research where the recipients of healing were people. And then we had what we called non-whole human. So this was research that used um, plants, animals and cells in vitro as the recipients of healing. Um, so the cells were, you know, sometimes they were plant cells, but often they were human cells as well, whether that was bone cells or maybe even things like cancer cells. Um, and to see what kind of impact there was in healing of, of those sorts of systems as well. Because obviously humans, um, even in a double blind study, there's some kind of expectancy. And so there could be placebo effects. So we thought if we looked at these kind of non-whole human systems, then placebo is unlikely to be an explanation. Um, I think there has been some research to show that maybe rats do experience placebo, but I don't think the same can be said of lettuces. So we felt that that was fairly safe uh, to look at. And what we actually found was that in both of those groups, there was an effect of, of healing, that healing was effective. Um, the effect size was small. So this wasn't a, you know, it wasn't a, a huge impact that we were seeing, but we were seeing an impact and it was across both groups. And that, um, that effect still remained even when we controlled for quality. Because um, unfortunately, a lot of the research into distant healing um, does have some methodological issues, especially around things like blinding. So blinding is where you hide what groups the participants are in from the participants so that they don't then have that kind of placebo effect. And if that doesn't happen, people can guess what group they're in and they'll kind of, you know, fill out their forms or their measures accordingly. So blinding is a way to, to help prevent that. And that doesn't always happen. And there are a number of other things that, that are kind of methodological issues with some of this research. But even when we controlled for that, even when we only took the higher quality papers, um, then we were still seeing an impact. Um, so that was really interesting and, and really promising for later on down the line when I was actually testing space, <clears throat> testing pagan healing practices um, because it seems like other uh, approaches to healing and that there were a multitude of different approaches to healing that we looked at did seem to have an effect. So that was quite exciting. The second part of the PhD was to then interview some practicing pagans to get an idea of what are the kind of core concepts of pagan spellcasting, because I was, I was using that umbrella term paganism. And obviously there are lots of different traditions of paganism, each with their own ways of doing things. And of course, there's a, a, a big community of eclectic pagans who will kind of pick and choose what, what works for them. And so there, there is a lot of variation in practice. But at the same time, that umbrella term exists for a reason. And so we wanted to see what are these core concepts within spellcasting, so that when we actually design the study to test the efficacy, the kind of um, things that we're doing do actually reflect what, you know, the way that people practice in real life. 
So if a practitioner from any tradition was to kind of look at what we were doing, even if they didn't say, oh, I do everything exactly the same way, they could just say, no, that does actually broadly reflect what I do. So I had eight people that I interviewed. Um, they'd been practicing between, I think it was about 10 and 40 plus years. So some very experienced people uh, from a range of different traditions. We had um, some Druids. We had um, some people who were um, traditional lineaged Wicca, um, some people who were eclectic. Um, and so we had kind of a range of, of different approaches in there. And so I was asking them about their, about their practices, what it was they did, what were the core elements, kind of how long would they expect to see results, that sort of thing. So we used that to inform the final part of the PhD, where I actually had um, a fantastic practitioner who worked with me for months, um, who was actually casting healing spells for participants who volunteered. And that was done at a distance. And that was done double blind as well. So that means the participants didn't know what group they were in. And I didn't know what group they were in. I was the one collecting data from them. But um, my PhD supervisor was the person who had assigned them to groups. So none of the people involved in the data collection knew what group they were in. So I couldn't give them any accidental hints about what group they were in. They wouldn't know. And so it's kind of a way of ensuring that we're eliminating the placebo effect as much as possible. Sounds extremely fascinating. I want to read your PhD thesis now. <laughs> yeah, it must have been quite fun as well, I guess. Or well, as fun as a PhD can be, of course. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. With that, yeah, yes, it was. It was. It was fantastic to be to be doing that and to just be completely immersed in all of that for so long. It was. It was fantastic. In your case, there wasn't really participant observation you were just there to collect the data yeah so the uh the practitioner was actually um on the other side of the country <laughs> um and so we were sending her um photographs of the participants we were sending them personal items because that was something that came through from the interviews was needing to have a representation of the person that you're casting for um, and we also sent her spell requests so we had the participants make a note of the sorts of changes that they wanted to see in their lives because that was another thing that came through from the interviews this need to tailor the the spells to the particular person and, and to the particular kind of purpose we had people fill out what they wanted to kind of see changed in their life um, we sent all of those things off to her she would conduct her, her ritual and her working and, and send things back. And in between that time, we would be measuring their, um, their quality of life uh, using quite a comprehensive scale. And we would measure that four times across four weeks. And it would be at a, at a point in between then when they would receive healing. And we would find out afterwards which group they'd been in. And we kind of compared their scores across the different time points to see if there was a difference from uh, kind of before the, the ritual was done to after the ritual was done. Was the healer able to tell you how long would it take for the uh, healing to, to occur in the person? I mean, so, um, why, why, did, why did you set the four weeks? Uh, we set the four weeks basically so that we could have a baseline. So the first week, 
would be that kind of baseline, what's their kind of standard measure before they've had anything done. We had the two weeks because we had kind of two groups we would split people into. And so between that baseline um, and the first, and then between the first and the second week, and then we had the kind of last week was to see if there were any kind of tail off effects. So when we'd interviewed people, they'd said that effects were seen fairly quickly. And so we kind of gave it about a week. In retrospect, I'm not sure if that was long enough to really see anything or to be able to see any clear differences. Um, and so there are things that I, you know, if I were to redo the research, I think that's one of the things I would change is maybe have a longer time period. Um, but that was some of the feedback that we that we'd got that the results could be fairly um, fairly quick. And were you the person selecting those who would receive healing? How did you select the people um, that would be healed? It's, so it was entirely by uh, it was entirely voluntary. So oh, okay. um, I advertised um, the the research that I was doing this that you know the kind of rough thing that it would involve, and then people volunteered to take part. And um, basically everybody would receive healing. So we split, as I said, we split the group into two. We used what's called a delayed intervention design. So we split the group into two, and um, first group received the first lot of healing and so the second group would be their kind of uh, their control and then the next week the second group would receive their healing and we kind of use the first group um, so that was kind of the the idea there with that so everybody would receive healing because we didn't feel that it was ethical um, from a kind of pagan Effective with pagan ethics to promise people healing and then not actually deliver it. Worked around that because um, we, you know, there were two lots of ethics that I had to balance. I had to balance research ethics and I had to balance pagan ethics with designing this as well. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point actually. That it's not easy to balance the two things out, <laughs> but you you managed brilliantly. <laughs> Thank you. So, and which were the results, the final findings from this research? Um, so, I would say that the results were inconclusive. Um, we did see that across the whole group, then people did improve in their quality of life from the start of the study to the end. And they improved in the areas that they requested. So the measure of quality of life that we used kind of split quality of life into four different dimensions. And it was only the physical and the psychological dimensions where we saw this improvement. So environmental and um, social relationships, we didn't really see a significant difference. So we did see across everybody that increase in the areas that they'd asked for, which was really interesting. But then when we broke it down into the group differences to see if when group A had had healing and group B hadn't, and then when group B had had healing and group A hadn't, to see if there were any differences that we could attribute then to the the practices, then the, we weren't seeing a significant difference there. And so we can't say that it was necessarily down to this spellcasting intervention, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. 
I think it would be nice if there was um, more research done in this area. I think if there were, um, I think there are some changes to the methodology that can be made to to be able to get a clearer idea of what's going on. But I think the fact that we did see that initial change in everybody in the areas that they asked for, I think is really promising, especially when combined with what we know about other types of distant healing. So it was inconclusive on one end, but on the other hand, it was promising in, in that by doing more research and more studies, you think that something more consistent might arise? Possibly, yeah. I think that, you know, with science, we never just do one piece of research and then take that as kind of that is exactly the outcome. We look for replication. We try and do things over and over and over again to see if we get a consistent answer. Um, so I think it would be really good to to explore this and to have this type of research done more and more with pagan healing in the way it is that you see with, for example, intercessory prayer. There's heaps of research on intercessory prayer. So it would be nice if there were similar amounts of research on pagan healing practices to get a kind of clearer idea of what's going on there. Yeah, I totally agree. And hopefully in the future we will have more of these kind of studies and from with different methodologies as well, which will really give us uh, a better understanding of the phenomenon. Absolutely. Moving on to your current research, which is on the relationship between religious orientation, nature connectedness and happiness, um, which also includes the flow state. Um, can you tell us more about that, about, about your current research? Mm -hmm. So um, at the moment, we're just finishing up data collection on this. So we're exploring the concept of nature connectedness, which is kind of self-explanatory, how connected a person feels to nature. Um, religious orientation, which we're talking about kind of um, what religion somebody is, because uh, there's different, as you know, there's different ways of understanding what religious orientation is. Um, so we're looking at it from the perspective of literally what is somebody's religion um, and uh, well-being or happiness, uh, which we're exploring from the perspective of uh, eudaimonia. So eudaimonia is understanding well-being and happiness as not necessarily being about just the, the presence of positive emotions and the absence of negative emotions. That's called hedonia. Eudaimonia is basically well-being that's around living up to your full potential and being true to yourself, living an authentic life. So we wanted to look at how all of those were interlinked because there's been a lot of research to show that um, nature connectedness um, is linked to both eudaimonia and hedonia. There's a really strong link between nature connectedness and well-being. Um, and there is quite a strong link as well between um, religious practice, being a member of a religious organisation and well-being. There's, there's lots of um, mental and physical health benefits of uh, following a religious path. And so we wanted to add in, you know, we wanted to add into that kind of paganism as well. Uh, so to explore how all these things be interlinked, um, my colleagues and I created um, a survey with a whole load of different measures in. So to measure nature connectedness, it included a measure of 
there's the nature connectedness scale. So it looks directly at nature connectedness. Um, we also had a measure that looked at what are called biophilic values. So the biophilia hypothesis is this idea that because our evolution as humans has been so um, shaped by our environment on, on so many levels, um, we actually have this kind of innate yearning for experiences with nature. And there are different ways that we interact with nature and they're called biophilic values. So an example would be a utilitarian biophilic value would be looking at the ways in which nature is useful. Um, a symbolic biophilic value would be expressing ideas through nature-based metaphors and symbolism, things like that. So there's, there's nine different biophilic values. So we took measures of those as well. Um, to see if there would be differences there, not only in how connected people are to nature, but in the ways that they connect to nature. Um, we also measured people's childhood experiences of nature to see if there was a connection there, if that had any influence. Um, and then we also asked people to complete um, a wellbeing questionnaire. So this is one that was um, created by RIF. It's the Psychological Wellbeing Scale, and it looks at wellbeing from a kind of eudaimonic perspective. Um, so it was a whole kind of battery of tests that people filled out along with demographic stuff about kind of what their religious orientation is. And we included atheists and agnostic in that as well. And so we're going to be kind of putting all of those together and seeing what the what the relationship is. So we're hoping that there will be some some kind of link there. And we've done some um, preliminary tests where we've had a you know a few hundred people take part. Um, and it's there's been some there's been some interesting results. But obviously we won't know the full results until we have the kind of number of people that we need to complete. But we're coming up to that now. How many do you need in order to finish it? I think we're, we're aiming for about 600. Um, we're pretty close. Um, but um, seeing as people are finding it difficult to get out into nature at the moment, then um, I think we'll, we'll probably be wrapping up data collection pretty soon. And then we'll and then we'll see kind of what the numbers are and what sort of statistical power they have. Mm. That's fascinating. So now people know that they have to follow you so that they can know <laughs> when the paper is is going to be published and know the results because this is a kind of a cliffhanger. <laughs> <laughs> a little bit. Um, I mean, preliminary results have, have been interesting. So we have seen some differences um, between uh, pagans and, and non-pagans on a number of the biophilic values. Um, so, for example, probably not surprisingly, um, in our, and I stress these are preliminary results, but in the preliminary results, um, pagans scored significantly higher on the symbolic biophilic values than any other group, um, considering it's a religion around nature worship with kind of, you know, the, the wheel of the year and gods and goddesses being avatars of the sun and the moon, that, that's not really surprising. Um, we also saw differences in um, in the connectedness to nature scale between pagans and, and all other groups um, and some other things. So there is some interesting stuff 
coming out. Um, some stuff that we anticipated, as I say, the kind of symbolic biophilic value differences, if you know anything about paganism, that's that's not massively surprising. Um, there are some, you know, some um, results that we weren't necessarily expecting as well, but um, we can't really give any definite answers until we've got all the data collected. Mm. Yeah, that makes sense. Do you think that um, pagan practices can somewhat um, foster eudaimonia? Yeah, so that's um, that's some of the stuff that I'm, I'm working on at the moment as well. I have a paper coming out in the Journal of Humanistic Psychology uh, very soon, which explores um, exactly that. Again, I'm, I'm in that paper. I'm I'm looking at eudaimonia um, as Riff's concept of psychological well-being, um, and so that with that theory of eudaimonia, there's this idea that there are six kind of core elements of eudaimonia. Um, so those are self-acceptance, autonomy, environmental mastery, personal growth, positive relations, and uh, purpose in life. And so I kind of, in the, in the paper, I go through how each of those is fostered in, in pagan practice. Um, because I think there's a lot to be said for pagan practice in, in all the things that it can do. So, for example, self-acceptance, I think, is something we see a lot of. Um, you know, there's an acknowledgement of light and dark in paganism. A lot of people will do shadow work. There is an acknowledgement of, of both kind of light and dark in, in people and in nature. You know, we see people being branded as fluffy bunnies, uh, kind of inauthentic pagans, if they're focusing purely on kind of light and love and not acknowledging the darker side of things. So I think that um, that kind of speaks a lot to this idea of, of embracing all of yourself, not all the elements of yourself. Um, and we also see it in things like the sacralization of the body and sex. You know, these things aren't treated as something that's kind of sinful or shameful. It's a part of human experience that is embraced, and that can be um, that can be massively healing for um, for well for everybody, but especially for marginalised groups like LGBTQ plus people and women who have you know massive um, expectations put on them around their body and those sorts of things. So so having that all kind of sacralized um, in the religion can be massively beneficial for things like self-acceptance. With autonomy and environmental mastery, it's obviously for, um, for a lot of pagans, there is this emphasis on personal agency, having control of your own practice, having direct experience of the divine. For um, a lot of the pagans that I interviewed, that was the thing that drew them to paganism was having this unmediated experience with the divine, not having to go through the clergy to be able to have that experience. And, you know, if we're looking at environmental mastery, this idea of, of having mastery over your environment, having control over your environment, then spells for purpose very much indicate that that, that is a thing that you can have. Personal growth is a really important element of, of paganism. For many people, kind of magical ritual practice is as much about personal growth as it is about acknowledgement of the change in seasons or anything like that. Um, in fact, um, Leah Rookby, in, in his research, found that in, amongst British pagans, 
personal development was listed as the second most popular reason for practicing. So I think that speaks to that a lot. Positive relations we see in uh, when people work in covens or in kind of in groups, then obviously that's going to be fostering personal relationships. Um, Douglas Ezzy in his book, Sex, Death and Witchcraft, talks about um, pagan festivals and one pagan festival in particular. Um, and he talks about the sense of communitas that's fostered there, which is this um, idea of a kind of deeper sense of community. So where the relationships that you have are more kind of open, they're more intimate. And so again, that's something that's fostered through ritual. And of course, a lot of, um, a lot of neo-pagans talk about the idea of interconnectedness and that being a way that kind of magic works. Um, and it just being a kind of fundamental element of their belief system that everything is interconnected. So that's obviously going to, to foster personal relationships if you feel that everybody is connected. Um, and and purpose in life, I think, kind of comes in a number of ways. I mean, um, any kind of spiritual or religious practice kind of inherently gives you purpose in life. I think it's one of the main draws for a lot of people as to why they might be religious or spiritual. Um, but we also see things like, um, you know, being given meaning in suffering. So if there's an acknowledgement of dark things, you know, going on and kind of pulling through that and being stronger as a result, that can bring meaning to suffering, which can be really helpful for people, can really help them cope with, with um, traumatic times if they find that there's a meaning in there or something to be, something to be gained. And... Also with things like the, the wheel of the year and the kind of cyclical nature of time that is um, an inherent part of, um, of paganism as well. You know, when we talk about the wheel of the year and the waxing and waning, life and death, these things are happening in nature, but they're also things that happen in our lives and as part of our human experience. And so having those things put into the context of this wider idea of, of, of cyclical nature of, of time and experience, that can also then help kind of put those things into perspective and give um, meaning to those sorts of experiences as well. You know, mm -hmm. Things like aging and you know certain kind of milestones in life, all those sorts of things can be put into this much wider context and that's that can be really beneficial for us as well. So this is all stuff that I that I want to explore because these are, um, you know, these are psychological concepts, and I think they're they're really useful ways to explore pagan practice. Yes, indeed it is. And it, it's also like um, pagans tend to attune the inner seasons with the outer seasons. Mm -hmm. Yeah, which is another form of connectedness, which is the the one you were talking about, really. Yeah, absolutely. So it's it's all it's so many of them are kind of interlinked, and you see them all coming into play in in pagan ritual and in pagan practice. Um, so I think it's really it, it's really interesting to explore, and I think it's nice to get out there as well because there's still I think there's still this idea of you know, why do people practice paganism? Why do people believe in this stuff? Um, especially when researchers come to discover that a lot of pagans are well-educated 
um, and will often have degrees and, you know, maybe in things like statistics. So they understand probability, you know, this belief in magic is not just down to a kind of cognitive deficit. Um, then the question becomes like, well, why, why would sensible people be studying this inherently nonsensible thing? Um, and so by actually exploring all these concepts through psychological theory, I think it's kind of, well, here's an understanding of actually this is what people get from this. This is how it can be really beneficial and how it can make sense to a lot of people. Although I like that kind of we're gradually bringing weird to the mainstream. I mean, the fact that that paper has been published in the Journal of Humanistic Psychology, which is a mainstream journal, I'm really excited about. It's part of a, a special edition that's looking at magic, mysticism, and altered states of consciousness. So there's lots of articles in there um, from people exploring similar sorts of concepts um, from a psychological perspective. And it's really exciting that a mainstream journal is publishing a special issue on this. Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. I was just invited to, you know, to contribute an article, but I was, I was so happy that, you know, that, that that is being published, that it's being put out there in the mainstream. So, so hopefully we can maybe make it less weird. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it is important to study outliers. Um, which is something that I also talked about in the Q&A for the uh, first thousand subscribers. Yeah, absolutely. You can learn as much about a culture from exploring what is on the fringes as from exploring what is in the mainstream. Absolutely. Yeah. You advocate for more studies to be done on paganism from a psychological standpoint, from a psychological perspective. So I was wondering what is the current state of academic research in the field of psychology with regards to magical practices and paganism? Yeah, so the, there's not so much really. Um, I mean, my, my focus is on kind of paganism, so rather than kind of magical practice broadly. So I think there are some people exploring kind of um, magic practices in general, but I'm not really aware of people who are specifically within psychology. I know myself, obviously, looking at this stuff, um, and Melissa Harrington is another psychologist who kind of explores um, paganism. She um, came up with the concept of um, the kind of coming home story of conversion to paganism. So um, there are kind of, there's set kind of conversion stories that people have. There's kind of very general stories that people have where they'll convert in specific kind of ways. Um, and she identified that none of those really reflected the experiences of, of pagans. And she identified this idea of the coming home theory, this idea that, you know, people had been exploring different um, religious and spiritual paths. And when they came to paganism, they suddenly went, oh, my God, this is how this is how I've been feeling. And this is what I've believed all along. Um, so she came up with with that theory. Um, but really, I'm, I'm not aware of many other people. Um, and I think that that's a shame. The majority of the research seems to be in sociology, in anthropology, in religious studies. Um, 
And I think that means that we're missing out on some stuff. Um, so uh, flow is something that I've identified in my work. I mean, Douglas Ezzy did, um, points out again in his book uh, in about 2014, that was when I was writing up my PhD and it was after I'd kind of picked up on this a little bit. Um, and then I, I thought, oh, I'll be publishing this, this will be completely new. And then I find out that I've been pipped to the post a bit. Um, but the concept of flow has been around since the 70s when Csikszentmihalyi um, kind of uh, coined the term. And I think if there had been more study from psychology around paganism, that might have been something that would be picked up earlier on. Um, and so I think there's there's lots of, of benefits to using psychological theory and using that as kind of the lens that you look at paganism through. Um, and I, I really hope that more people kind of pick it up because there is this emphasis in psychology at the moment, in mainstream psychology, on kind of trying to be more of a hard science. Um, and so there's, you know, a real focus on things like um, neuropsychology and, uh, you know, cognitive psychology and those sorts of things. Um, and so with that comes this kind of dismissal of anything anomalous. And this idea of, well, we can't explain it with current theories, so there's no point in looking at it. You know, that woo idea, which really bugs me. Um, because if we can't explain something, then surely we should be exploring it more. That, to me, is is what science is and how we should be using it. Um, so I would really like to see more people looking at these sorts of practices from the psychological perspective, because I think there's a lot that can be gained from that. Yeah, I'd say precisely for that reason, <laughs> because it's something that we don't understand yet. It needs to be studied from an academic point of view. Yeah, you know, topics in and of themselves, I don't think can be scientific or not. Science is what scientists do. It is a method of investigation. If you are exploring something, the scientific method, then, then you are doing science. And that's, you know, I think there's benefit to that. Yeah. So. I totally agree with you. <laughs> Thank you very much, Charmaine. I think that your research and your studies are absolutely fascinating. And I, I think that you all should check out her work. I will surely do, so <laughs> thank you again for being here on the channel and for doing this interview with me. So hope you all liked this video, I'm sure you did. If you did, smash the like button, subscribe to the channel, activate the notification bell so that you won't miss any future video, and as always, stay tuned for all the academic fun. Bye for now.